Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen. Good morning, Grantham Church. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are loved. God loves you. And I love you too. Say that. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham, and we are excited that you chose to worship with us, and we're excited about our children and all of our volunteers for this week, and just ask you continue to to pray for them. I'm especially excited this morning because I get to preach at the base of a volcano. I've never done that before, so hopefully it will stay dormant. This is the third message in a four-part sermon series called Christ the Center, How the Gospel Shapes Community. What does it look like to be a Christ-centered church that is faithful to the gospel? How can we be a church that doesn't obsess over boundaries or one that ends up erasing all lines that set us apart as faithful disciples? In this series, we are looking at how Christ is the center of our community when we're pursuing him together, when we're affirming historic Christian beliefs and we're living out our values as Christ followers as we extend grace to those who are at different places in their journey, amen? If you're just joining us, we began our series with a message, The God of the Center. I addressed how our concept of God and our understanding of the gospel will determine the sort of community and culture that exists in the church. And so here at Grantham, we say Jesus shows us what God is like, and so we want to worship and know this Jesus and follow him with others in the church for the sake of the world. We are leading others to the God who looks like Jesus, we say. Therefore, the more we seek the God of the center, the more we uh, become like him, both individually and as a community. That's what we said. Message number two, last Sunday we looked at how the gospel challenges the bounded practice of community in the message, the shriveled fruit of a bounded church. My guess is that many of you have experienced some form of bounded Christianity. We recalled how the Pharisees practiced this bounded set, but Jesus rejected it. And we spent some time in Galatians chapter one through four where we heard from the Apostle Paul explain why focusing on boundary markers isn't consistent with Christ or the gospel of grace. And so now this morning, we're looking at the meager fruit of the fuzzy church and what it looks like when we erase all lines and boundaries, when we get sort of loosey-goosey with our beliefs and our discipleship, either to be non-judgmental, often in reaction to bounded thinking, if we're honest, or to align ourselves with the spirit of the age and why this is equally a bad idea. And then next week, I hope you'll join us for the final message, a really important one. It's called the deep well of a centered church. We'll see that there is a third way option 
of being a community that pursues Jesus together, allowing folks, as we said, to be at different places and see how we can discern who is a follower and who isn't and hold grace and truth together as we live and worship in relationship to one another. I hope that already this series has been helpful to you and will continue to be so in the days, months, and even years to come here at Grantham. As most of you know, this series was inspired by Mark Baker's book, Centered Set Church, Discipleship and Community Without Judgmentalism. And I'd like to begin this morning uh, with this, in this message, by reading a story from the very beginning of Mark's book. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's a, maybe a little lengthy, I'll read through it quickly, but I, I think it's a really important story to hear, which is why I want to read it to us. Mark tells us, Dustin Maddox's parents grew up in restrictive line-drawing churches. As adults, they fled the church and did not return. But Dustin occasionally went to church with his grandmother. Once when he was eight, an older woman told a group of children, Jesus loves you so much that he died for you so that God will not send you to hell. Dustin thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. He raised his hand and asked, if God loves us, then why does God want to send us to hell? The woman responded, people who ask questions like that end up going to hell. (laughs) It really happens, folks. It's unfortunate. At that moment, at that moment, Dustin, like his parents, decided he was done with church. Oh, this is eight years old, right? He did not want to end up like that woman. The stories he had heard from his parents and his experience with judgmental Christians in high school reinforced this conviction. His rejection of confident judgmentalism led him to align with those who took the opposite stance, what he called a pluralistic approach to any truth claims. And pluralism is simply by the idea that we live in a world of many competing beliefs, but we're supposed to just sort of equalize all those and say that they all profess sort of the same kinds of truth claims. However, Dustin did have some non-judgmental Christian friends who did not turn him off, and so he sporadically went to their church youth group, and through their encouragement, he made a last-minute decision to accompany the youth group on a spring break trip, uh, mission trip to Mexico. The week was intense, both disturbing and exciting. He started the week by asking, what is VBS? Well, that's interesting, VBS this week. Only to find himself helping to run a vacation Bible school program. The poverty he witnessed in Mexico disturbed and saddened him. Three brothers who walked a mile to come to the program caught his attention, especially the three-year-old who made the trek barefoot. And during a group prayer time, Dustin blurted out, I don't know how this works, but God, if you are there, if you could get this kid some shoes, that would be really cool. The next day, the boy arrived wearing brand new shoes. And Dustin recognized that any number of things might explain how that happened, but the startling answer to his prayer moved him deeply. That prayer came in the context of a week of studies on the Sermon on the Mount, And Dustin was finding Jesus to be completely and utterly compelling, unlike anyone he'd ever heard or experienced. And during the final study, the day the the boy arrived with new shoes, a youth pastor from another church did something that that had never happened in Dustin's youth group. He gave an altar call. And so Dustin went forward. And that moment of repentance 
in the communion service that followed, Dustin encountered Jesus and it sensed a call to greater, to something greater. And he also recognized his shortcomings and brokenness in a way that he never had before. Yet it was a guilt-freeing, shame-depleting experience that was radically different from what he had felt as an eight-year-old. God's love overwhelmed Dustin. Back home, he became actively involved in the church and in the youth group. Rather than drawing clearly defined lines to distinguish Christians from non-Christians, his leaders worked to erase lines because they had also experienced the negative fruit of line drawing. Because they held on to enough of Jesus, Dustin made connections with what he had experienced in Mexico. He felt like a, a Christian space to him, but in many ways, the spirit and the practices of the youth group matched the world that Dustin had inhabited before the mission trip. Listen to this. The fundamental philosophy was, whatever works for you. Jesus seemed to be an optional add-on, a, a sort of life coach mixed with relativism and pluralism. In fact, things were so fuzzy and the imperatives so soft that Dustin felt no need to change his life in any significant way. He continued to party just as he had before. And later when he began working at the church, his supervisor said, now that you're a leader, it's probably best if you do these things in a less public way. The softness of this suggestion displayed the degree of discomfort that the church felt with anything that might appear to be line-drawing exclusion. And though Dustin did not experience any of the judgmentalism that drove his parents and his eight-year-old self from church, he began to recognize that the fuzzy, line-erasing approach also produced negative fruit. The flight from judgmentalism in the church led to a milder form of the whateverism that Dustin had lived before becoming a Christian. The church often attracted Christians who were seeking an alternative to the line drawing judgmentalism of their churches. And so Dustin observed that as people got fuzzier and fuzzier, they eventually just left the church. As individuals wandered off, he sensed the church getting fuzzier too. Vague Christianity is not interesting or compelling, life-giving or transformative. And as the emphasis on genuine Christian orthodoxy decreased, like the Apostles' Creed stuff that we read this morning, the number of people living increased, or the number of people leaving the church increased. Just as I had sincere and positive motivations for drawing lines, Dustin and others like him had positive and sincere motivations for erasing them. Yet, Dustin began to recognize deficiencies in the pluralistic, non-judgmental soil into which he and his friends had sunk their roots. The center of gravity was the autonomous, authentic self. And he saw this in his friends, both Christians and non-Christians, pursue many unhealthy actions that they easily justified by claiming that they were just trying to discover their true selves. They legitimized a whole variety of behaviors with little genuine reflection about how it might hurt themselves, but also others. In the end, what was determinative was subjective. I can do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, and no one can tell me differently. There was no call or challenge to transformation, no imperative to work on deep-seated issues in one's being or character. Rather, the corporate culture was one of permissiveness because who am I to tell you any differently? Common guidance was just listen to yourself, which was offered without reins or constraints 
without sharing a word of caution that our desires might mislead us because our feelings are fickle. More and more, Dustin realized that although the people in his church desired community, the soil in which the church was planted was not providing the conditions needed for true community. Looking back, Dustin sees how ineffective he was pastorally, not just because he never offered words of warning that were desperately needed, but because of the blandness of it all. Who wants to have a conversation with a pastor who is just super nice? As in, hey man, I'm just here to support you in whatever you choose. You see, there's a role for people like this in our lives, but they don't draw us toward transformation. They don't challenge us by saying, I know who you are and all that you could be. Here are some things that do not reflect who God created you to be. If we're going to grow, we need to have people around us who can help us picture the kingdom of God by saying the path that you are walking is not the way to life. But you can step into this kingdom life because this is the life which God made for you. You see, the reality of Dustin's encounter with Jesus remained alive in his being and the themes from the Sermon on the Mount remained part of his experience. But as the years passed, he recognized that he had not been summoned to greater obedience to Jesus. He felt a strong push to try to fix the world, but also an absence of any summons to sort out how to be a disciple of Jesus himself. He came to understand that many people in the church saw themselves as Christian authorities on the external world, but they did not recognize the need to obey anything beyond themselves in their individual lives. Despite his growing awareness about the negative aspects of the current he was in, he floated along because he didn't want to be associated with line-drawing rigidness. In response to the self-righteous judgmentalism of a line-drawing church, it is understandable that Dustin and others like him pulled out their erasers and wiped out the lines. In response to the relativism and the blandness of fuzzy churches, It is also understandable that other Christians have pulled out their markers to draw clearer and bolder lines. The intentions of both are positive, but the fruit is negative. And Baker says, is there another option? Is there a third way? I think that there is. As I've told you in the previous messages, Mark expounds on three different ways of being community. And here are the images that are intended to help us grasp what each set looks like in practice. Again, the image for the bounded church, which we looked at last week, has clear lines of who is in and out. And remember, it focuses on the boundaries, much like the Pharisees did, having boundary markers. All concerned about who is in and who is out, which creates all kinds of dysfunction in the church. Then there's the fuzzy church, which removes all lines and boundaries with no clear distinction. This church is a reaction to the bounded and often seduced by the spirit of the age, just going along with the world. And then there's the centered church, which discerns who belongs to the group by observing people's relationship with the center, Jesus Christ. This church holds grace and truth together as we meet people where they are and lovingly point each other to Jesus. And since we're looking at the fuzzy church this morning, here's the definition that we saw at the beginning of the series. A fuzzy church is the opposite of the bounded church. It erases all lines and boundaries. The grounds for distinction of who's in and out and shaming judgmentalism are gone, but the fuzziness erodes the group's sense of identity, lacks a sense of call to a different way of living, and inhibits others 
uh, from loving others fully. It has a tendency toward blandness and low expectations and creates a new set of problems in the church. I want us to think about what some of those problems are. First, I think we should recognize this, would be better off if we would recognize this rather quickly today, that any belief or practice formed simply in reaction to an extreme, like the bounded church, runs the risk of moving to the opposite extreme. And that's never good. Also, as the opposite of the bounded church, the fuzzy set still operates according to the in-out, us-versus-them thinking. But the fuzzy church simply draws new lines, albeit unclear, all while claiming to be enlightened and more loving than the bounded. Also, since the fuzzy church promotes grace at the expense of truth, which is not reflective of Jesus or the gospel, the bond of tolerance and whateverism isn't enough to hold the group together, nor can it be about discipleship, teach holiness, or be on a gospel mission. And of course, when this is the sort of community that has been formed, there is no way to distinguish followers of Jesus from non-followers. Therefore, the fuzzy church while it may at first seem like a refreshing oasis, as it was for Dustin in the story, for those who've experienced the extremes of the bounded church, after some time, this kind of church will eventually discover it has no real purpose for gathering, certainly nothing that can't be found elsewhere in the world, which is why people eventually leave. Who needs it? I can find other things to do with my time on Sunday morning. And so this church will eventually die as it fails to place Christ at the center, fails to use cultural discernment and light of Scripture, and fails to grow as a community shaped by the gospel. In other words, the end of the road for the fuzzy church is death by assimilation to secular society and culture. Its lack of rootedness in the gospel gives it no ability to resist that assimilation or offer anything of eternal value to the world. And so the fuzzy church ends up parroting the world and mimicking the spirit of the age. At most, you can only expect meager fruit, right? Meager, meaning lacking in quality and quantity. In just a moment, we're going to be looking at two passages in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, where Paul is concerned that the Corinthians are on the dead-end road of fuzzy Christianity. But before we look at that, I want to invite us to hear Paul challenging a fuzzy church paradigm here to the Corinthians. Once again, Paul is quite upset. I mean, keep in mind, like it was with the Galatians, Paul sees himself as the spiritual father of these young Christians and the churches that he helped to plant. And where Paul was witnessing the Gentile Christians of Galatia turn to a bounded set, what he called a false gospel, pressed upon them by Jewish agitators of the law, in Corinth, a Greek city known for, let's say, being more progressive, Paul is hearing reports of them being divided about a number of things, but also how they're sliding into a fuzzy faith that sets aside discipleship, discipline, and holiness in the name of freedom and self-expression. And so he writes to them about these matters. Notice, just a few short years after writing to the Galatians about being bounded, we now read Paul's writings to a fuzzy congregation that was succumbing to worldly ideas of freedom and tolerance. And it threatened the life of the church 
and its gospel witness. So let's jump in at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to catch a glimpse of where this fuzzy faith and community practice leads us. Now, what we're about to look at is quite an extreme example, but I want you to, I want to show you where the end again, where the end of the fuzzy Christianity road takes us. And celebrating the sort of I can do whatever I want spirit of the age. Look what happens here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, after addressing all manners of divisions in the church that Corinth was having, Paul gets to some of the root of their biggest problems, which are around sexual immorality, and specifically this. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. (laughs) And this is so bad that not even the secular, non-believing pagan world around them is doing this. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. Now, it would seem as if his stepmother, his father had passed away, and then he kind of hooked up with his stepmother. He says, you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame. You should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in the spirit And as though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, I thought we weren't supposed to judge people. Well, yes, certainly not pass judgment on folks the way that God and only God can do. But Jesus also said in Matthew 7 that we can judge a tree by its what? Fruit. The word here in Greek, and Paul uses it just like Jesus does, is krino. Probably a a better English word would be discern. I have discerned the truth about this situation, Paul would say, and specifically about this person and about what they have done. He says, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit and so will the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think he keeps saying this because this would be a very hard thing to do. But he wants them to know that Jesus is with them in it. So then you must throw this man or put this man out, depending on your translation, and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord returns. Now I know this just really pushes some buttons today to hear this kind of language, but think back to how Paul is invested in this church and in these people, seeing himself like a parent to these children at Corinth. And so not only does he have a concern for this person who has done this, not to be destroyed physically, but that the flesh would sort of take over, that they would see where the flesh leads them. That's what I think he means by handing him over to Satan. We may say more about this next week. But for, for the time's sake, what Paul is meaning to emphasize is not only does this man's actions affect him, but it affects the whole community, almost like a parasite. And I think that we are just so disconnected from this idea today as we live in a culture that celebrates individualism. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. It doesn't affect you, so why do you care? That's not the way reality works. And not only is the New Testament pushing back on that, but I think even science is telling us that today, even at a quantum level. Everything is connected. 
Even if you do it in secret and in private, it is affecting the community. It is affecting society and it is affecting the church. Skip over to chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Paul captures here a mantra that they seem to be saying. Now, this is going to sound, I think, kind of familiar. We hear something like this in our own culture today. Chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. He said, you say, and then notice it's in quotes, I'm allowed to do anything. I'm free. I have, the, I have rights. We've heard that before. I'm allowed to do anything. But look what Paul says. Not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Now you say, and he quotes another mantra that they were saying, probably a part of larger Greek society, pagan society, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them, but you can't say that our bodies are made for sexual morality. Now what is Paul addressing? He's saying, I have desires, like I get hungry, so I eat. I have sexual desires, and so I please myself. <laughs> now, how much do we see that kind of thinking and mentality today? I have sexual desires, I have sexual urges, so I must act on them, otherwise I'm not being my authentic, true self. And this is the same kind of mentality that Paul is addressing to the church of Corinth. So sexual morality is especially a big problem in Corinth. Some new believers are apparently worshiping Jesus with the church, but still living like lost people during the week. It, we, we, we see indications here that are visiting pagan temples, and part of the pagan practices was to go to the temple and visit their prostitutes. That's how you worship the God. Now, that's, that sounds, you know, like a lot of fun to some pagans, right? I'm, I'm just, this is just part of my religion, to go and please myself at the temple. But Paul would be uh, challenging this whole practice, especially sleeping with your stepmother. It is a fuzzy church, run amok. If you look there at chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, again, church discipline is not just for the individual, it is for the community. While not the focus, boundaries can be good. I was thinking about that this week. When you think about boundaries, every good parent knows that boundaries are a good thing. I don't want my sons playing out in the street. And if I let one son play out in the street, the other son looks on and be like, ha, ah, that looks like a lot of fun. I should do that. Doesn't seem like it's, you know, he's in any danger. At least the cars haven't come by yet. I mean, you can see the same thing with matches. Kids shouldn't play with matches. But again, it doesn't just affect the one, it affects everyone. And this church wasn't just allowing it, they were celebrating it. Thus, the, the sharp tone that Paul uses to address it. So Paul is clearly saying, folks, not all boundaries are bad. And true followers of Jesus, they know this because Jesus himself said that we're to follow him and bear fruit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he was talking to the religious leaders when he said this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A New Living Translation says, prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And so are we free in Christ or not? Someone might ask. Yes, but let's not return to Galatians or now let's return to Galatians and actually hear uh, how Paul is explaining this freedom and how the grace that's been given to us by Christ and the freedom that we have in him is to result in a changed life because beliefs matter. And whatever we believe, our behavior flows out of it. 
So behavior matters. So what then are we doing with the grace and the freedom that's been given to us when we first received Christ? Listen to what Paul says about this. If you would turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. Paul says, for you've been called to live in freedom. Yes, my brothers and sisters, to live in freedom. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your flesh. Now, sometimes the word sarx in the New Testament is uh, translated flesh. The New Living Translation translates is sinful nature. It's so purposely not to confuse when it says that the word became flesh. We don't mean became sinful. So the New Living Translation, which I'm reading from, would say sinful nature instead of the flesh, so you don't confuse that. Let me read that again. You may call to live in freedom, but don't use your freedom to satisfy the sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how you're truly free, Paul is telling them. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Their freedom was, was leading to these divisions. Verse 16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature, that is the flesh, wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. You hear what Paul is saying? There is a war within us. So just because I feel something doesn't mean that God has placed that feeling there. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 7, and, and he tells us that I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do them. Folks, there is a conflict within us. This is why we say we are made in God's image, but what? We are broken and not as we should be. And so we take everything to the Lord Jesus. We take everything to the Lord Jesus, and we apply the Scriptures to how we think and how we live. Is it in line with Christ and the gospel? Is it consistent with my new identity in Jesus? Or am I getting my identity elsewhere? These are questions that we should be asking. Paul goes on. He says this in verse 19, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, in case you weren't sure what that looks like, Paul gives us a sampling of that. He says the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, uh, sorcery. Now, I'm not sure on the word he uses here. I know there's one word in the New Testament for sorcery uh, that re- it is the word is pharmakia. We get the word pharmacy from that. And drug use is associated with this. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Paul is saying, that's the fruit of the flesh. That's when you know you're not listening to Jesus, right? How many times we've heard people say, well, God told me to do this and to do that, and and it's not in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, he gives us the positive fruit, the Holy Spirit's fruit. Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. There is no law against such things, Paul said. Those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have nailed the passion and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. In other words, Paul is saying, as he would, if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, you do not belong to yourself. Your body was bought at a price. You belong to Jesus. Submit to Jesus. Folks, this is the truth of the gospel. As contrary as it might be to the messages of our culture, this is truth. We must listen to the words of the Lord, to the words of the apostle, and search our feelings, as they would say in Star Wars, and you will know it to be true. Paul goes on there in the Galatians in chapter 6. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, listen to Paul's heart here. You are godly. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on to the right path. This is the heart of Christ. The intent is not to exclude or to shame or to bully out of self-righteousness, but it is to help restore people back to the path of the gospel. And don't miss this church. And in his book, Baker writes, although Paul does erase some lines that the Jewish Christians are drawing to separate themselves from Gentiles, Paul does not take the fuzzy approach that we observed in Dustin's story. Paul does not write, erase the lines everyone is in. On the contrary, he centers them on Jesus and he implores them to live in God's grace and use their freedom to grow in Christ-likeness. You see, true freedom and in the grace of God allows us to act, allows us to pursue Jesus. It, it frees us up from the rule thinking of the world to operate according to the life of the Spirit. And for it is those who do this that identify and include themselves with the body of Christ. Now, before we reflect with some questions and respond to the Spirit here, church, here, look at this. Here's a snapshot of what I think fuzzy thinking and practice leads to and the sort of community that it creates. Now, you remember, some of this is juxtaposed to uh, what we saw with the bounded church and the fruit that it produces. We start then with our portrait of God. The fuzzy church promotes a portrait of God as a permissive parent. You know, I, I, I didn't have permissive parents when I grew up, but I knew some folks in my class who did. And we had parties at their house. God is this permissive parent, as a divine butler, how may I help you? Or as a, a cosmic therapist who just exists for your happiness. And Christian Smith, the sociologist, coined this phrase as moralistic therapeutic deism. You can look that up later. The fuzzy church mimics the zeitgeist, that is the spirit of the age, by accepting secular ideas of tolerance and of individualism, as we've been saying, and inclusion and relativism. It creates a church culture of whateverism that prefers niceness to cultural discernment, truth-telling, and mutual accountability. Mutual accountability. Mutual, I said that, accountability. It breeds licentiousness, apathy, complacency, and blandness. 
God's grace in the fuzzy church is cheapened by disregard for discipleship. Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace, not the costly grace of God. And lastly, life changes are minimal because Jesus is not the true center. Listen to this. Don't miss this. Instead, where the bounded church's center and focus is on the boundaries that separate so that we can feel better about ourselves, the fuzzy church's focus or center of gravity is encouraging people to be their authentic self and ensuring that there are few, if any, boundaries while holding a vague, always ambiguous, not sure of anything faith except that we should never hurt someone's feelings. Unless, of course, they are from a bounded church. Or maybe they vote Republican. Or they don't agree with our theology or politics. Then we exclude them. Of course, for the fuzzy church, they wouldn't say they're excluding anyone. No, 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 they cancel them. But let's be clear. Different word, same concept. Do you see the, do you see the spectrum? We'll see this in a graphic next week. Between the bounded and the fuzzy. Next Sunday, we're going to hear we need to just get off that completely. Stop ping-ponging in our theology and our politics and doing this sort of craziness because it doesn't lead us to Jesus. It doesn't lead us to be the church that Jesus wants us to be to live in these extremes. And I'm intentionally trying to connect some dots here, if you've noticed. (laughs) If you notice, folks who are more conservative probably tend to be a bit more bounded. And those who are politically progressive tend to be more fuzzy. It's true. Therefore, I think it is in keeping with the gospel and our aspirations of being a third-way congregation, which is, as I've said before, is not some mushy middle just so we can all get along and that sort of thing. No, no, no. I think Jesus is calling us into heavenly community that gets off the crazy train. Amen. Ozzy Osbourne might not like it, but Jesus does. Some of you will understand that reference. Therefore, I think it's in keeping with the gospel, right? In our aspirations of being a third-way congregation that we resist these forces that appear to be driven more by our political opinions and by extreme ideologies today than a faith in a church community that's been shaped by the gospel of the New Testament. And our inability to hold grace and truth together and our lack of love and unity proves that. Let me say it again. Our inability to hold grace and truth together and our lack of love and unity, which Jesus emphasized and prized so much, it was his last prayer about his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's our inability Let me say it again, to hold grace and truth together and our lack of love and unity that proves that our lives are not being shaped by the gospel and the New Testament. And this ought to be sobering. So brothers and sisters, just as we ought to say no to the bounded church, let us say no to the fuzzy church so that we might say yes to Jesus and the gospel, which as we'll hear next week is best known, experienced, and embodied in the centered church where we hold grace and truth together in the way of Jesus. Amen.
In closing, here are two questions for reflection and response. And as we, we did last week, we asked a similar question about those who've experienced the bounded church. Maybe you've experienced a fuzzy church. So have you experienced that? And is there hurt that you need to name and ask God to heal in you? Think about that and reflect on that a moment and listen to the voice of the Lord. And then number two, and be honest, be honest with yourself. I mean, be really honest with yourself. Lord, help us be honest with ourselves. Is there any fuzzy thinking in you that distorts your view of God, right? Is this permissive parent, divine, butler, cosmic therapist that has led in your thinking to licentiousness, apathy, and accepting the spirit of the age. Is any of that in you? And then lastly, what about in our church? I feel so passionate about this church for such a time as this that we can capture a vision of what Jesus and the gospel are all about and the community that he calls us into. But we must resist the forces of the world that would have us to choose between the bounded and the fuzzy, between judgmentalism, right, and just whateverism. And the only way to get there, the only way to experience this sort of community is to follow Jesus into it and resist the competing forces and allegiance, allegiances that tell us otherwise. Do you see those forces at work? Can you hear them in your favorite cable news organization? Do you see them across the landscape right now of all the varying conversations that are happening? Do you see those forces? Aren't you tired of it? Don't you want a better way? May we come to Christ to know and experience that better way. For that is where change happens. Father, oh Lord, their spirit is in the room. And we want to listen to that spirit because we recognize there's another spirit at work in this world that would draw us away from the truth the truth that has us reflect on our own thinking and our own living and our own behavior and repent. The spirit that would have us chase after another gospel to pick sides, to continue the division in this world. Lord, we know that you've called us to a better way. So show us that way. May you have a vision of that way this morning, of a kingdom that looks like Jesus. Help us to discern how to follow you in this world. As we reflect and respond now, Lord, be with us. Help us to see the God of the center. In Christ's name we pray.